Before we begin, a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by the law firm Schwegman, Lumberg, and Westner, with offices in Minneapolis, Silicon Valley, Austin, and the UK. Let's do an experiment. Close your eyes and picture a scientist at work. Who do you see? Researchers have been conducting this experiment with kids since the 1960s. It's called the DAST, Draw a Scientist Test. And in this test, kids of any age will often draw the same stereotypical scientist, an older white man with crazy hair, wearing glasses and a lab coat, working alone in a laboratory. This picture is problematic for so many reasons. Not all scientists have crazy hair. Not all scientists wear glasses. Not all scientists work in labs or work alone. Not all scientists are men. And not all scientists are white. DAST researchers have found that stereotypes about scientists not only shape a young person's perception about who is a scientist, but they also shape a young person's perceptions about who can be a scientist. Which means that kids who don't wear glasses or have crazy hair or aren't white and male are less likely to see science as a viable career path. That's a problem, of course. We want women and people of color and people with not crazy hair and no glasses bringing diverse perspectives to the world's scientific questions. We want inventors and mathematicians and botanists and chemists and geneticists and engineers of all sorts, of all different backgrounds, to bring their experiences to bear on solving the problems of today and tomorrow. In this episode, we'll meet a journalist and a biologist who are helping to dismantle the stereotypes about who can have a career in STEM. They're resurrecting the stories of women and people of color who made amazing inventions and contributions to science with the hopes that these diverse examples of resilience and creativity will inspire students today to draw a different picture of who can be a scientist. From the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, this is Stroke of Genius. In a tiny schoolhouse, built for formerly enslaved people outside of Norfolk, Virginia, a seven-year-old black girl named Bessie Blount received a rap to the knuckles from her teacher. Her crime? Writing with her left hand. It was the 1920s, and some still saw left-handedness as a taboo. Bessie Blount was outraged by the punishment. She decided then and there that she would never go back to that school. And she told herself that if she wasn't allowed to write with her left hand, Well then, she wouldn't write with her right hand either. Instead, she taught herself to write with her teeth and her feet. It was an act of defiance and a very creative way of surmounting a problem. Bessie brought this determination to the many chapters of her life. And although she often faced discrimination, she refused at all times to let race define her. Bessie was a doer. She didn't let any obstacles stop her from what she wanted to achieve. That's Amy Padnani, 
She's a writer and editor at the New York Times who uncovered Bessie's story for a historical series she started called Overlooked. I'm the daughter of Indian immigrants and Asians are often just silent about everything they're experiencing in life. And I just valued that Bessie wasn't like that at all. She just said, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to find use for everything that I learn about life and make sure others can benefit from it too. There was just something about all of that that I was really inspired by. Amy works on the obituaries desk at the Times. And while you may think that'd be a depressing job, Amy says that's not the case. No, not at all. You know, obits are really about the life of someone. Only one sentence in the entire obituary actually deals with death. I find it so uplifting on many days, so inspiring to read about all these interesting people and what they've done with their lives. So I actually, I, I really love my job. It's, it's so unique. Because she loves her job and because she's a journalist, Amy was curious about the history of obituaries at the New York Times. So she did a little digging. The New York Times began publishing on September 18, 1851. And on day one, we had an obituary in the newspaper. How did we know that obituaries would be so important that people would care and want to know about who died? I was really fascinated by this. And I looked into how our desk has changed over those hundreds 70 years now. One thing that has not really changed is that the majority of obituaries in the New York Times have been about the lives of prominent white men. In 2017, with the rise of Me Too and Black Lives Matter movements, issues of racial and gender inequality were prominent in the news. That was also the same year Amy joined the obituaries team and noticed that readers were writing to ask about the imbalance in their coverage. Some readers said, you know, I've been tallying up the, the obits that publish, and I've noticed that roughly one out of every five is on a woman. Why don't you have more women and people of color in your obituary pages? I hadn't even noticed, really. But they had a good point. And I really wanted to know, as a journalist and a woman of color, what could I do to help contribute to this conversation? You know, one of the the most important facets of journalism is giving a voice to the underrepresented. On March 8, 2018, International Women's Day, Amy launched Overlooked, a history project that tells the stories of remarkable women and people of color who never got obituaries in the New York Times, but absolutely should have. People like Bessie Blount. When I learned she was an inventor, I just was really... I just wanted to know, you know, what she created and how. I mean, I think that was that was one of the things that drew me initially. Bessie's family left rural Virginia and moved to New Jersey, where she studied nursing at the Kenny Memorial Hospital in Newark. The hospital had been founded by Booker T. Washington's physician after he discovered that local hospitals would not hire black doctors. Bessie eventually became a licensed physiotherapist and took a job at a hospital in the Bronx, where she treated many World War II soldiers who had lost their arms after undergoing amputations. Bessie, of course, had just the experience to teach these veterans how to write again. And she taught these soldiers to write with their teeth and their feet, which was really remarkable. Except this one doctor tells her, well, if you really want to help these boys, you'll find a way to help them feed themselves. And she said, Okay, I'll do that too. She worked really hard for this, and 
She was really, really dedicated to making it usable. Bessie worked for 10 months, pulling all-nighters after her shifts at the hospital to come up with a device to help the injured soldiers feed themselves. Her workshop was her kitchen. And her materials were plastic, a file, an ice pick, a hammer, and her own dishes. She used boiling water to melt and mold the plastic to create what she called the invalid feeder. In 1948, she filed for a patent for part of her design. She then spent several more years and $3,000 of her own money making improvements. She worked really hard for this, and she was really, really dedicated to making it usable. So this device was basically attached to your neck, and it had a spoon attached to a sort of motor, and the motor would kick on. The spoon would deliver a mouthful of food, and then while the person was chewing, the motor would turn off again. Bessie had created a very early model of what would become the modern feeding tube. She demonstrated a stainless steel model of the invalid feeder at a New Jersey hospital. The audience gave her a standing ovation. It was called a most ingenious apparatus by the head of the American College of Surgeons. Bessie found a manufacturer in Canada and went to the Veterans Administration, asking $10,000 for purchase of her invalid feeder. She said, here you go. I, I found a way for these soldiers to feed themselves. And the response from the administration was, eh, that's okay. The nurses can just feed them. I had a quote from Dr. Paul B. Magnuson, the chief medical director of the Veterans Administration, who told her at the time that the device was impractical. He said, Hand feeding by nursing and attendant personnel is the most satisfactory method. Oh, she was so upset. She said, what, are you kidding me? It just went against everything Bessie was trying to do. I mean, she herself was all about self-reliance and she, you know, always forged ahead and never let anything stop her. And that was really all she wanted was to help other people be able to do the same. So it was a real slap in the face when, when she got that response. In 1951, the same year her patent for the invalid feeder was approved, Bessie's spiritual leader, Father Divine, who founded the International Peace Mission Movement, encouraged her to give it away as a gift. She signed away the rights to her invention to the French government for use in military hospitals, foregoing her $100,000 fee. Historians speculate that the U.S. Veterans Administration simply may not have had the resources to purchase and manufacture Bessie's invalid feeder. The VA was certainly unprepared for the number of disabled veterans who returned home after World War II. But Bessie seems unable to have ruled out race as a factor. Years later, when asked why she gave away her intellectual property for free, Bessie made it clear that she didn't care about money or fame. She wanted the world to know that black women had the ability to make inventions that would benefit mankind. Forget me, she said. It's what we have contributed to humanity, that as a black female, we can do more than nurse their babies and clean their toilets. Despite being rebuffed by the Veterans Administration, Bessie continued to invent medical devices, including a disposable kidney-shaped vomit basin made out of water, flour, and newspaper. Its design is very similar to what we see in hospitals today. Eventually, Bessie switched gears and became a handwriting analyst, 
based on the observations she'd made while teaching amputees to write again. Later, she took a course in document analysis at Scotland Yard, started a consulting business, and appeared in court as an expert witness at trials. On the side, she wrote for a New Jersey newspaper. Bessie Blount Griffin lived an amazing life, but her obituary did not appear in the New York Times. And it was this oversight, and so many others like it, that Amy Padnani sought to correct. I mean, even though she in her life achieved so much and went on and kept doing and creating, I think that she didn't quite get her due for these reasons of the way that the rest of society had viewed race at the time. Amy understands what it's like to be a woman of color whose smart contributions initially go unrecognized. When I tried to push for Overlooked to get off the ground and I got resistance right away, you know, oh, we don't have the resources for something like that or you know, I don't know, maybe maybe people didn't feel like it was an important endeavor. As soon as Overlook launched and the public had the opportunity to read stories like Bessie Blount's, Amy knew she'd done the right thing to push for her project. I got hundreds of emails. A lot of them were from people who said, you know, thank you so much for telling these stories. I felt seen for the first time. Or, you know, I cried on my way to work because it meant so much. And I thought, gosh, there's so many people who are just walking around feeling invisible. It's meant a lot to just be able to give people that that moment where they can see themselves in someone who actually made a difference and know that they can too. Here's another story you might not have heard before about people making a really big difference. Do you know who first figured out how to successfully cultivate rice in the United States? Don't feel badly if you don't. If you, we did a poll of people on the street, maybe one or two people out of a thousand would know that uh, like the technology, the tools, the knowledge to grow the crops and to process the crops, all of that came from enslaved Africans and enslaved African-Americans. That's Dr. Christopher Williams. He's the STEM education specialist at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., He specifically runs programs targeted to 3rd to 12th grade students and their teachers. But he'll tell you that the museum always has visitors of all ages and backgrounds in attendance. And students rarely visit alone, so he has the opportunity to teach everyone. A big part of his job is correcting the historical record and inserting black men and women back into the picture so that we don't end up thinking that all inventors or scientists are crazy-haired white guys in lab coats. Christopher tells the story of how, when British colonists first arrived in Virginia and the Carolinas, they tried their hand at planting rice. They planted on relatively high ground, using methods that they knew from growing cereals such as wheat, oats, or barley. And the results were not impressive. They failed because they were trying to use the original techniques of growing in rows and, and allowing for rainwater to provide water to the crops, whereas when you're growing rice, you need to harvest the water, collect it, have standing water, drain the water. But enslaved Africans had no problem growing rice in America. While the exact record for how their knowledge passed to their enslavers are murky, historians believe it went something like this. Enslaved Africans were permitted to plant small crops for food on what was seen as undesirable land. Drawing on West African agricultural practices, 
they constructed embankments in swamps and wetlands where they could plant patches of rice. Enslaved women knew how to process the rice, using mortars and pestles for hulling and baskets for winnowing. Plantation owners probably observed these ingenious practices and forced their slaves to do the dangerous and backbreaking labor needed to cultivate rice for them on a large and profitable scale. The enslaved Africans brought all of that information, all of the knowledge, the tools, and the technology that allowed rice to be globally traded and, and, and shipped around the world. And because of that, the, the enslavers of South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia who lived in this region became some of the wealthiest slave owners in, in, in all of the nation. While it's important for him to set the record straight on how America's first globally traded cereal commodity got its start, I never learned the story until I, until I came to the museum. I was like, this is one of the most amazing stories that I've ever heard. Christopher's ultimate goal is to change the narrative, for young people in particular, about the history of science, technology, engineering, and math in America. In addition to the rice cultivators, he tells museum audiences the story of Onesimus, who shared information with his enslaver about how he himself underwent a process known as variolation. Variolation is similar to vaccination and is considered to be its precursor. Years later, Onesimus's enslaver used this information to work alongside a local physician to variolate several hundred Boston residents in the fight against smallpox infections. Then there's the story of Henry Boyd, born enslaved in Kentucky in 1802, who invented a revolutionary way of building bedsteads that were sturdier and could endure more stress. He was unable to receive a patent for his design because of the color of his skin. There's the story of Garrett Morgan, the self-styled Black Edison, who in 1914 patented a gas mask that saved lives in his hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. In 1923, after witnessing a horrific accident between an automobile and a horse-drawn carriage, Morgan also patented the three-position traffic signal, adding the yellow light as a transition between stop and go. And there are current-day inventors like Lonnie Johnson, who recently attended a 2020 STEM day at the museum. Formerly a rocket scientist with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Johnson holds over 120 patents. While his current focus is on technologies to advance clean energy, Johnson is perhaps best known as the inventor of the super soaker water gun. Every time we tell a story or, or share an image of an African-American scientist, what we're, what we're showing and sharing with the students is that you actually belong here and you African-Americans have been a part of this country making contributions and helping to co-create this nation for as long as this nation has been in existence. What you're doing is starting to open, open their eyes to all the possibilities of who actually can be a scientist. For Christopher, science has always been an integral part of life. He grew up in Baltimore, one of three boys, collecting tadpoles from a creek near his house and checking out library books on anatomy and animals. Baboons and wolves were his favorite. I just always wanted to have large canine teeth like them. And I just did my best to try to make mine longer and try to put those fake vampire teeth on. I thought they looked really cool. He eventually put the vampire teeth away and graduated from Georgetown University with a PhD in biology. His focus was molecular parasitology. He held prestigious fellowships at the National Institute of Health and the National Science Foundation, 
all while working in STEM education on the side, until he landed his dream job at the African American History and Culture Museum. But Christopher's journey in STEM wasn't all smooth sailing. He likes to tell a story from when he had to take the comprehensive exam, which is the part in a PhD program when students demonstrate that they're ready to start doing independent research. He looked forward to being in the lab all day, performing experiments and analyzing data. But he failed his comprehensive exam. There was no confidence after I failed that test. Like, I was crushed. Like, I actually, I went home and stayed with my parents for a week to get myself back into a place where I felt like I could enter the world again. With the support of his advisor and his fellow graduate students, Christopher learned not to let the failure define him. And instead, to see that... The moment wasn't uh, necessarily a reflection of me and the quality of person that I am. It's just You just messed up in this moment and it happens. You just got to keep going. He returned to take his test. Excited and enthusiastic to you know, tackle this challenge that took me down the first time. Three years and countless hours of research later, he crossed the graduation stage at Georgetown and received his PhD hood with his entire family there to cheer for his accomplishment. This is a story that Christopher likes to tell young people to remind them that there will be setbacks along any career path in STEM. And, well any career path at all, really. He hopes to arm students, teachers, parents, and anyone who attends his programs with examples of resilience, particularly from Black Americans throughout history who often faced terrible obstacles. Sharing those stories is incredibly powerful, but also it gives people the the encouragement and the inspiration to know that these folks did all of these great things with fewer resources. If they were able to do this, while dealing with all of these other things that were trying to steal their attention, steal their energy, and steal their spirit, then I can do this too, because I'm I'm just going through a fraction of that, and I won't let this break me. You probably won't be surprised to learn that another story Christopher likes to share with his audiences, and one that inspires him personally, is that of Bessie Blount. What you can see from Bessie Blount Griffin is she does not take no for an answer. She also... It's very creative, and she, and she figures out how to get things done using the resources that she has on hand. And, and that's, that's a, a life skill that everybody should have, is not to look outside of what you have, not to look outside of yourself to try to solve problems. You can see how persistent and determined she was. She just wanted the world to know that an African-American woman can do great things. Whenever Christopher tells Bessie's story, He always pauses in the part of the story when the VA declines to purchase her feeding tube invention. He likes to point out to students that sometimes people working in STEM will be ahead of their time, and it may take a while for society to catch up, to understand their vision or adopt their ideas. The important thing is to keep believing in oneself. Just because people don't necessarily see or understand your vision or understand its usefulness or 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 its benefits, it doesn't mean that your your ideas or your invention or your thoughts aren't valid and don't work. This has been particularly true for African-Americans in STEM. Christopher says that too many times, white Americans have been too quick to overlook the genius of black inventors and scientists out of discrimination. I know when they saw 
uh, Betsy Blount Griffin, they were probably looking at her like, there's no way that you could possibly have anything to offer me. But I mean, clearly they were wrong. He points out that the patent for her 1951 invalid feeder has been cited in around 20 other patents, with the most recent one being in 2019. So that shows that her the her ideas have use and value that, you know, transcend decades and transcend time that are, are just as useful now as they were back when she came up with it. When Bessie Blount died on December 30th, 2009, at age 95, she was in the process of trying to create a museum and library to commemorate her former classmates and her old primary school, the one where she had her knuckles wrapped for writing with her left hand. Even at the very end of her life, she never stopped working to benefit humanity. She was 93 years old. She said, you know, a lot of people think I'm dead, but I'm not dead yet. I'm going to live just for spite because my work is not done. <laughs> there was this constant pattern of, of making things happen for herself and, and not letting anybody tell her no. And I, I really love that about her. Bessie Blount claimed that she'd once been asked to donate her inventions to museums, but she bristled at the idea. She said, why should I donate things I made and they'll charge students to go and see them? No. Later in her life, Bessie took her inventions on the road herself. She would go around the country. She would speak to students. She would tell them about what they're capable of. She would carry her gadgets with her and bring them to classrooms and show them what she built with her own hands and her own inventiveness and resourcefulness and just always sought to, to inspire young ones. Bessie told the young people holding her inventions, you're a part of history. Can you imagine what, like the actual inventor coming into your school and talking to you and allowing you to touch their device? I mean, I imagine that would be life-changing for any student who is interested in the area of science or invention. If anyone understands the power of putting history into the hands of young people, it's Christopher Williams. He knows that by sharing the stories of Black Americans in STEM, he won't necessarily inspire everyone to be scientists, but he can change perceptions about who was and who can be scientists. He is redrawing the picture and helping students, teachers, their parents, anyone really, understand the importance of staying resilient in a career in STEM. I hope they are just as creative, persistent, uh, just as kind and well-meaning as Bessie Blount Griffin was. I hope that they, they realize you can do great things and still have massive challenges along the way. I, I would hate for anybody to, to face a really big, overwhelming challenge and then fail and then be completely discouraged. Because what Bessie Blount Griffin did is she literally just listened to what was inside of her heart. And her goal was to help people to make life better. She was just living her life and following her passion in, in a way that very few of us do, and it allowed her to do a, in a, an amazing amount in her life. This episode is sponsored by the law firm Schwegman, Lumberg & Wussner, with offices in Minneapolis, Silicon Valley, Austin, and the UK. Thanks for listening. <laughs>